This is part 2 of 2 in our series on Arctic exploration in the early 20th century, and particularly Scott's Terra Nova expedition. In the first part, we covered how they got there, and now we're going to talk about what happened when they got there. So, okay, let's let's set the scene. They, I, I was talking earlier about how galling it must have been to turn around at 88 degrees south, but what about reaching the pole and finding this little haha, I beat you note from Amundsen, which, oh, it may have all been in good sport, but whatever would have kept you going, and this... This this isn't a hike like when you're going down hiking in the Comoros mm-hmm. with your map and your friends. This is like, you know, low visibility, walking in snow, uh, just endlessly trudge, 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 trudge. And then the sun goes down or it never goes down. And you sit in the tent and you eat your little biscuit. And then you wake up in the morning and you start trudging again. Doing that for months on end. Obviously, you have to really work on morale and focus on the goal. And then once you get to the goal, yeah, it's like, hey, hey, it didn't really matter. And in some sense, of course, it mattered. It, whether or not Amundsen got there first, it was still an incredible achievement. And as you say, these guys were doing more than just getting to the pole. They were doing science. They wanted to collect rocks. They wanted to collect uh, eggs from the penguins. They were surveying it. They were part of the Royal Geological Survey. And, and so it was an incredible achievement. All the same, they must have been utterly dejected. Yeah. And now they have to head back. I definitely, I think looking through it, um, trying, to, trying to put yourself in Scott's shoes or anyone of the five that made it to the pole, only to realize they'd been beaten. Uh, it, it's... I'm not exactly sure what they'd be thinking, you know, because as you said there, uh, the motivation on the way there obviously is we're, we're going to be the first people to the pole. Now, it was in question at that stage. They knew Amundsen had already set out, but, you know, still, you know, they're motivated to be the first people to reach the South Pole. Once they get to the South Pole and what's left is, well, you know, we failed our main objective and now we've got to do that journey back again in much worse condition than we were on the way out. You know, um, the... the Scott didn't choose or uh, didn't take Crean to the pole as part of the final four or the final five as it ended up being because he he knew Crean well and although he knew Crean would be very disappointed he would take it much better than any of the rest of them. So he, I think we can safely say that Crean would have gotten to the South Pole and survived. I think so. Yeah. I think that's a historical fact. Um, mm. he, and and this is funny because like out of everyone there, Crean was was not this kind of classic. English gentleman he yep. was he was from West Kerry mm-hmm. uh, very Irish the, the S- spoke Irish himself spoke Irish and would would loudly sing Irish during the night as they were sailing around the otherwise you know n- nothing going on South Seas yeah I, I think both Scott and Shackleton uh, recognized whatever uh, whatever qualities Crean had to the group um, and each bop bop was brought Crean uh, on their expeditions but maybe to me anyway it seems like maybe Shackleton, Shackleton understood what Crean brought to the party overall better than Scott did so Scott maybe maybe understood that he was a hardy man who would endure 
endure whatever he needed to on on the South Pole or sorry on Antarctica. But Shackleton, when when you look at the endurance expedition, um, really seemed to value in his journals the the, the benefit of having someone like Crean there. You know, like a uh, an insurmountable spirit where it, whereby anything anything that would go wrong uh Crean would just kind of duck his head and deal with it you know mm-hmm. oh yeah okay so 18th of january 1912 five men reached south pole to find they were beaten by amundsen so we, we've painted the picture they've just gotten to the south pole amundsen has beaten them by 39 days and now they begin the long heartbreaking trek back this is on the 18th of january on the 6th of february the ship arrives and so at this point we have a string of different smaller parties uh all the way from the south pole out to uh ross island where Mm -hmm. the ship had initially landed or sorry cape evans so so at this point we have a string of small groups all the way from the South Pole up to Cape Evans where Terra Nova has arrived to pick everyone up. Eight days later, the Terra Nova meets up with the Western Party, who were closest, uh, came back, uh, collects them uh, not far away and brings them back to Cape Evans. Uh, Then the Northern Party uh, get back to the rendezvous point. Terra Nova isn't there. Why is Terra Nova not there? Because the sea ice has completely blocked the passage. Uh, during this time, the South Pole party is heading back, and the first of them d- has died, which is now 17th of February. On the 3rd of March, the Terra Nova leaves Cape Evans, because otherwise she'll be frozen in. Now, at this point, nobody knows what has become of the South Pole Party if they reach the pole or not because there's no way for them to get a message. There's no carrier pigeon. There's no smoke signal. They can be pretty much guaranteed that they're the only people within uh, within the, the South Pole region at that time anyway, you know? so <laughs> It was a safe bet. They left their tent doors unlocked and everything. But this, this, was, this was a very real risk. And, of course, they don't want to jeopardise the lives of everyone by waiting and so the ship leaves on the 3rd of march now bearing in mind that the northern party had been waiting for the ship the ship never got in and didn't manage to get in and left and so the northern party at this point say well what are we going to do they know the ship isn't going to come back during the winter and so they they have to just prepare to winter over on the beach in an ice cave on what they called Inexpressible Island. And I'll, I'll leave to your imagination what was inexpressible at that point. So on, on the 18th of January, you have uh, Scott and his four companions preparing to make their return journey to Cape Evans. Now, what's interesting to, to look at is the surviving letters and journal entries uh that scott made on his return journey uh seem to seem to suggest that the scientific part of the expedition had uh gained increased importance now that their primary goal scott's primary goal was while obviously leader of the expedition that had a, a significant scientific element to it 
no one was under any impression that Scott really wanted anything other than to be the first to reach the South Pole. But it does it does really appear that once once he knew that that was gone and he'd been beaten, um, that for whatever reason you may think of, he he really felt that whatever scientific endeavors they could carry out on the way back or during the rest of their time on the Antarctic that they should do everything to carry them out which makes sense i guess you know and mm-hmm. um, but does i feel give you a bit of an insight into what he was kind of going through at that stage at that stage um interestingly enough the the tent that shackleton and three of his friends were found in because of course oats at that stage had wandered off uh in, into a blizzard and was never seen again the, the their final resting place in that tent they had still with them 30 pounds of rocks from the south pole and um, because i th- i think they they came on or they came upon uh quite good fossilized rock samples and um wilson who was this the head scientist of the group who was in the final south pole party uh he he recognized their importance and mentioned it to scott and scott had each of the men carry about eight pounds of rocks the entire way back um, which as i said was still with them at, at, at their final resting place so if you look at the breakdown of what happened to them on that return journey um the tent where the tent was found with scott and his three companions was about 11 miles from the nearest food depot they, they were actually aware of that they were aware of how close they were as scott mentioned in his final letter that the he fully understood that they were quite close to um to salvation really you know because had they made it there and had been able to kind of just hold up for a few days and you know get back some kind of strength or even just wait for someone to to reach them because i suppose where they were was along a route that people generally knew but it was mm-hmm. still a tent along a vagueish route but the depot was a definite location that the reasons for for why they didn't make it to the depot being so close it's it's kind of hard to figure out uh, we know that they spent they spent about 10 days in that tent and never left the tent so once they pitched it um at that point 11 miles from the depot th- that was it um mm-hmm. scott in his own journal entries mentions that for for those 10 or so days that they were in the tent the reason that they couldn't leave was because of a blizzard that had been uh, howling for the entirety of the 10 days and i guess you know if you think about it, whatever whatever your visibility is like at the best of times in the Antarctic in low light and windy conditions and snow, if there's a blizzard outside, you you probably are signing your own death warrant if you walk out into that. Uh, however, letters from the other members of the, 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 the South Pole party who were in that tent mention nothing about a blizzard. The only thing that seems relevant to... Uh, relevant to them not leaving the tent is that scott supposedly had quite bad uh, badly frostbitten feet um but that's that's the only thing that's mentioned it's just interesting that uh the the perhaps the uh the men under scott uh, i suppose what you have to remember as well is um scott hadn't hadn't publicly at least publicly said who was going to make the final trip to the south pole so you know perhaps you had people who felt a bit beholden to scott for giving them the opportunity and choosing them out of the whole group of people that went with them and felt you know if i leave captain scott here with his frostbitten feet and he dies and i make it back you know what kind of position am i in then when i make it back to the base camp and i have to explain that yeah i just decided to get up and leave i i wonder like is it good to speculate that these guys wouldn't have done pretty much anything 
because the they're they're so far from civilization that there's no law. You 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 can just collapse the tent on top of the other guys and run away. You know, if if you want, I I think that like obviously going back and doing forensics is very difficult in this sort of a situation. But you you have to imagine that if they could have gone that eleven miles, they would have gone. And I think I think that uh, I mean the 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 way they acted bears out that if if say Scott could have said go on without me he would have I I mean looking at what Oates did Mm -hmm. that was a very clear go on without me wandering out into the blizzard and I don't doubt that any they they would have been up for that I think you couldn't take somebody on an Antarctic expedition with you if you didn't think that they were willing to make themselves disposable (laughs) <laughs> sorry no no if, if if they if they weren't willing to you know make the right decision in terms of you know saving more lives or yeah i suppose the thing is looking at this now it, it's hard to know exactly uh how the lads were were you know faring mentally after these weeks of uh the weeks spent reaching their destination that they ended up getting reaching too late and then the weeks back knowing mm-hmm. that they that they'd messed up and hadn't uh, fulfilled their goal you'd like to think that rationally yeah that that would be the the thought process but i suppose at this stage you know um if you have people who were potentially not in the best shape before the before the final part of the expedition mm-hmm. even started i don't know what condition they're going to be in at that stage you know what i mean so absolutely is is there an element of unusual decisions being made you know like it, it would seem to me that looking looking back on this and seeing that scott had them had them trail 30 pounds of rocks to their mm-hmm. deaths yeah uh it doesn't seem like the most sensible decision now those fossils turned out to be quite important uh, in later years but still you know is that is that something that's that illustrates that scott felt kind of responsible after failing to reach the south pole in time that he had to turn up with something you know not not just turn up to there to uh, cape evans and uh say well yeah we didn't reach the pole and we didn't actually get anything either we've nothing to kind of you know one hand longer than the other type of thing <laughs> in fairness they did reach the pole sorry yeah, yeah. reach the pole in time yeah um yeah so uh, is is that is is that explained by something like that where uh where it's it's scott trying to make up for their mm-hmm. perceived failure or could they just not rationally think, should we get rid of these rocks, lads, you know? I have read from other explorers that um, the idea of trailing like rocks on a sled, as long as it's on a sled, actually isn't as bad as it sounds. And um, the weight on the sled is actually less important than the surface that you're dragging it on. So you could potentially have quite a heavily laden sled in decent conditions which would be easier to take with you than, like, say, a sled with pretty much nothing on it, but in, in, in very bad underfoot conditions. That said, I, like, I'm, I'm looking at a picture of uh, four of them pushing the sled, uh, and it, it looks tough. I mean, there's four lads with their skis and their ski poles harnessed to the sled, and they're, like, mm. j- just tr- trying to tug this thing along. And it looks very difficult. Despite the fact, with with, with Terra Nova, um, as we said, despite the fact that uh, they failed their primary objective um, and the 
the final South Pole party actually didn't make it back. All five of them perished uh, before returning to the camp. Uh, like the the other sides or the other aspect of the expedition was the scientific side of it, and you know th- there was there was definite value in terms of uh, like scientific discovery and progress made through uh, studies done on the island. You know they set up a weather Wilson set up a weather station on the island. Um, you had uh, you had you had a glaciologist who looked at the movement of the ice flows and the glaciers themselves and how it all kind of um, intersected and, and affected the conditions there. Um, you also had zoologists uh, along along with them. So in in terms of the breakdown of um, that that final five that made it to the South Pole late, albeit and started the journey back, it was Evans. I'm looking at a picture of him now, mm. like in 1912, and his face is black with frostbite, and like he he was he was in rough shape already. Mm. Uh, he he'd left his sled behind, and um, he he was holding everyone back. On the 17th of February, on the way back, they were trudging back, and things weren't looking good. Edgar Evans, who had been selected somewhat unexpectedly to go on this final party of five to the south pole had very bad frostbite there are photos of him you can see that his face is absolutely black with frostbite his fingers were gone he he'd um, managed to get a knife wound on the way which wasn't healing obviously was you know not in any shape to be doing this kind of really strenuous hiking he had a couple of bad falls on the second time he fell into a crevasse and he he was holding everyone back he 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 had to take off his sled harness and still managed to fall behind everyone which obviously slows down the whole party when they realize and have to go back and get him they said when they went back to get him that he was just delirious they they couldn't do anything with him so they put him to bed and he just died in the night and that and that was that was the start that that was that kind of set the tone for this journey back. It seems pretty apparent, even even from just looking at the photos of the five of them at the South Pole. While none of them look like they're in great condition, it does seem like Evans looks a bit worse off. You know, like noticeably in the face, he, yes, he, he looks quite frostbitten. Um, and I suppose it'd be hard to kind of put put the failure and the deaths of them down to to kind of one single point of failure, but. It would seem to me anyway from reading about various different expeditions and how the leaders dealt with um, dealt with uh, different situations and different like disasters that happened on the expedition. It would seem to me that Scott bringing Evans along with them, you, I suppose you could say how much did Scott know about Evans' like physical condition, but you know I would also think that the the leader has to take responsibility for that. And you know if he if he's choosing to bring this person on the final hurdle, the toughest part of the entire expedition, then he should be pretty sure that that person is going to hold up and not drag the rest of them down, which is exactly what happens. I think uh, I, I think it's it's interesting as well that with with Evans with Evans dying in his sleep essentially, you know he just he just went to bed and, and never woke up. Um, I know with with Oates, uh, when it, when he was in a similar condition in terms of frostbite to what Evans was. Now I I don't think Oates had had any major falls. I don't think he had any like catastrophic head injuries or anything like that. Not like Evans anyway, who was clearly severely concussed. Um, 
Oates, I suppose, was a, a bit more cognizant of what was going on around him and how he was affecting other people. Um, so I, I know that Scott wrote in his journal the, the, the night before Oates famously walked off into a blizzard, he um, had mentioned that he was hoping not to wake up and that he would just go to sleep, not wake up like Evans and you know that's that's it sorted he's he, he he doesn't have any more agency in the matter he doesn't have to sacrifice anything else he just goes to bed and hopes he doesn't wake up which is pretty uh pretty grim yeah um however the the next morning he did in fact wake up and um decided he he'd seen the effect that Evans kind of dragging the party and slowing the party down had had on the on the the whole group and decided he was just going to take it upon himself and and walk out into a blizzard now it is mentioned in in scott's journal entries and the other the other letters that were sent from from um the other guys in the final stage of his journey that they protested with him when he was making his way out of the tent now you would imagine that they would protest but knowing what the situation was knowing that evans was already dead and knowing that oates couldn't really do anything any longer uh, or couldn't couldn't make any more progress back to back to um cape evans they were probably i don't want to say happy enough but but how, how hard are you going to fight yeah exactly you know um so I, I think one of the major things with with oats as well was um with the frostbite in their feet the the biggest problem or the biggest issue was when you wake up in the morning at night time you take your boots off because you'd have to take your boots off in that type of situation because if, if you if you're not letting them out of the the boots for at least a few hours a day like um you're not going to be able to walk in the next day they'll swell and all that sort of thing but the problem is as well when they're frostbitten you take them out of boots they're swollen anyway and then you have to put them back in the boots in the morning time and supposedly with oats it was the idea that you'd have to wake up again and actually just do that and he said no i'm not doing that and went off boot like without boots um straight into the blizzard so your man uh that, that was edgar evans edgar evans 350 miles ahead the party of Crean, Teddy Evans and Lashley had almost made it back to Hot Point. Teddy Evans is half dead on a sledge and he's being brought along by Crean and Lashley uh, who had been ordered to leave him behind. He, he was the ranking officer at that point. He was a lieutenant. And they decided bizarrely that Lashley would stay and look after Evans while Crean went on alone. Uh, it was about 80 kilometers he he walked through the night or something like that yeah 18 hours and he managed to raise the alarm where everybody else had been wintering over bring them back um and they both received medals but i suppose actually that cream making it back um from from his group that also had to remain behind uh was the first contact from any of any of the South Pole party, you know mm-hmm. that that eight that initially left. How how long before that? What date did you say it was? Like that that, that was on the eighteenth of February. February. Okay, so you're talking about um, a month after Scott's final party had left the pole, and these lads are still struggling to get home, and they didn't even make it the entire way to the pole. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. as far as I know, yeah, Crean made it back um, and was in such a condition that it took a month to recover. Mm-hmm. But interestingly enough. It wasn't until Crean fully recovered that they actually reached Scott's tent. So for whatever reason, I don't know, were they waiting for Crean because they knew he had an idea of the the uh, landscape and all that? But yeah, they, they waited until Crean was back on his feet and he, he was 
part of the party that found the tent. And the, now they they weren't in a rush. They knew they had to wait for the winter to yeah. be over for the ship to come back. And I should point out for those of you who are wondering when winter is, this is the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. and winter is in the summer. So, but I mean, just just for for context, like it, the the humidity isn't as bad um, in Antarctica as it would be, say, in Ireland. But the temperature during that February was measured as minus 40 outside. Mm. And this is what they were hiking through. Minus 40. Yep. So as as you probably know by now, uh, Scott didn't make it. They spent their last 10 days inside the tent. And I, I mean, we were speculating on what they might have been thinking. We do have some insight, however biased. I want to read you a short a short bit from Scott's last letter, which he titled Message to the Public. Because I think, as we speculated on earlier, it was it was enormously important to him what people thought of him, his achievements, the achievements of his men, and especially that it you know, the the whole thing hadn't been in vain and that all the effort they'd gone to was respected in some sense. He he starts the causes of the disaster are not due to faulty organisation, but to misfortune in all risks which had to be undertaken. 1. The loss of pony transport in March 1911 obliged me to start later than I had intended and obliged the limits of stuff transported to be narrowed. 2. The weather throughout the outward journey, and especially the long gale at 83 degrees south, stopped us. 3. The soft snow in the lower reaches of the glacier again reduced pace. We fought these untoward events with a will and conquered, but it cut into our provision reserve. He goes on to explain a great length how there were necessary risks taken and that they didn't work out. And I think he makes a good case for himself. And I think while while we talked about how fantastic Amundsen vo- Amundsen's voyage was in terms of planning and clever allocation of resources, having a smaller party, having a better route... I don't think that anyone could really say that there was a fundamental flaw in Scott's plan. He finishes up, he says, Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of hardihood, endurance and the courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. These rough notes and our dead bodies must tell the tale, but surely, surely, a great rich country like ours will see that those who are dependent on us are properly provided for. That was what he was worried about in the end. What was going to be the legacy of this trip and that those who are dependent on us, which means the survivors and the the dependents, the wives and children of those who died, would be looked after, which I think is a very noble yeah, noble message to leave. I, I think you, you do get a bit of a vibe through that and through the fact that he wrote, wrote individual letters in that final tent that they didn't leave for their last 10 days on, on Earth. He, he spent the time writing letters to the families of the people who'd made the final journey with him. So the four of the people at that stage, well, at that stage, Evans was gone. Oates was gone. So it was just the three of them in the tent. So would Scott have, would this have been weighing more on Scott's mind, given the fact that they hadn't actually reached the pole in time to beat Amundsen? And also at this stage, when he's sitting in that tent, and the blizzard's supposedly raging outside and they're all frostbitten and two of them have already died, is he thinking, God, yeah, 
I have to I have to do something to recognize these lads if you know I'm the head of the expedition we didn't we didn't meet our main objective and we're potentially going to die on the return journey you know so is he just putting this in place to be to I don't know yeah give the men the recognition and kind of say that you know it it wasn't any individual point of, of failure that caused caused the whole thing to to fail he could have just lumped it on Evans he could have been like Edgar Evans the bollocks pestering me the whole time to let me on the final part of the journey like can we bring him on and he dies and then I'm about to reach the depot and I'm so fucking cross I have to spend a week writing letters about what a shithead he is I thought you said something interesting there that um, in the context of Scott's letter to the public talking through the expedition and, and what had maybe gone wrong uh, you said that reading that there doesn't seem to be any single um single point or single part of the plan that you would say oh well, that's clearly the failure was it a case where it wasn't part of it wasn't any part of scott's plan that was the failure it was scott himself that failed the party maybe maybe through through, through various different things you know because w- when you do compare him to shackleton a couple of years later now shackleton um did, didn't complete his main objective you know um and really when you look at it was kind of posed with um much worse conditions and a much worse situation really than scott was in you know like scott had their base camp set up at, at cape evans and they had been, like they had everything in place to make the final journey shackleton shackleton's expedition didn't even reach the point they were supposed to reach i think it was only another about 60 miles um to the place where they wanted to land but they got stuck in the ice and from there had to just figure the figure a way out from there um so w- when you compare like when you compare a situation like shackleton's to scott's i suppose naturally given the the nature of the two stories and the two expeditions scott's going to come off the worst but yeah it, it, I, I think you're right it's it's hard to say well there's one single thing here mm. i that, think i think we have to allow for the for the interference of luck mm-hmm. that they're you know every time you take a risk it, it can go wrong and you you have to make calculated risk he he was fully aware of that and his risks didn't pay off now maybe he was taking the wrong risks yep or maybe, or maybe yeah. he was unlucky. I, I think it, it definitely seems like yes. Some of the some of the risks he chose to take himself may have been, Ill, maybe ill thought out. And uh, I mean, it's fine for us with our twenty twenty rose tinted glasses looking back um, to to point at what he did wrong. And I think we're entitled to. I mean, that's what that's what history is. But. Yeah, I, I suppose um, for. For for decades up until up until the seventies and eighties, um, there was really no questioning of of Scott's plan or you know questioning um his decision making at the time and whether maybe an alternative solution could have been found. You know they they, they didn't necessarily have to have to die on the return journey or they didn't necessarily have to go out in a bad condition, taking more people than they were supposed to, not using the right methods, not learning from earlier stuff. It, it's hard to know really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 what what we didn't get into in detail here, but is is clear throughout the story, is that problems compound. The fact that Amundsen was able to go faster meant that even with the same clothing, his men will get less frostbite. The fact that he had a smaller team meant that nobody got sick, and it, once somebody gets sick, it slows you down. Once one thing goes wrong it puts a strain on everything else and it makes it more likely for other things to go wrong. And I think the Scott expedition 
is is just it's it's a it's a case study in compounding errors and in such an unforgiving environment as the antarctic you can see that it was disastrous yeah so we've got a journal entry which was scott's final journal entry um written i'm assuming after his message to the public since the 21st we have had a continuous gale from the west southwest and southwest we had fuel to make two cups of tea apiece and bare food for two days in the 20th every day we have been ready to start for a depot 11 miles away but outside the door of the tent it remains a scene of whirling drift i do not think we can hope for any better things now we shall stick it out to the end but we are getting weaker of course and the end cannot be far it seems a pity but i do not think i can write more or scott for god's sake look after our people and those were the final words that robert f scott ever wrote you definitely sense in that final journal entry that well the awareness of the inevitability of the situation for all of them which is yeah it's it's um it's kind of heavy enough to read i suppose because yeah what does it say i do not think we can hope for any better things now we shall stick it out to the end but we're getting weaker of course and the end cannot be far so on the 29th of march we're talking not even counting the journey up the barrier and then across the polar plateau uh just since they reached the south pole you're talking about what two and a half months Two and a half months in awful conditions with... Two of their party dying out of five. Yeah, uh, and we, we should have got through in spite of the weather, but for the sickening of a second companion, Captain Oates, and a shortage of fuel in our depots, for which I cannot account. This one, this one issue, this, this is bugging me. I'm looking at Scott's message to the public, which he wrote on his last day in February in 1912, sitting in the tent he said i do not think human beings ever came through such a month as we have come through and we should have got through in spite of the weather but for the sickening of a second companion captain oates and a shortage of fuel in our depots for which i cannot account and finally but for the storm which has fallen on us within 11 miles of the depot at which we hope to secure our final supplies the shortage of fuel in our depot for which I cannot account. Now, let's unfold that a bit. First of all, why was fuel missing from the depot? And secondly, can Scott really not account for it? What about the first one? Why was fuel missing from the depot? So, the depots that they were going to later rely on, regardless of whether they were successful or not, um, would have had to have been stocked in time because these depots would have been used on the outward journey and then the, re- the journey back. Um, so at specific stages, uh, men from Cape Evans and further camps that have been set up maybe close closer to the polar plateau uh, were to, under certain conditions and regularly, regardless of the conditions, make sure that the depots were stocked. So uh, when they say fuel there, it's interesting because sometimes fuel is mentioned and it seems like they're actually just talking about general supplies. Um, but I think specifically here it may have been fuel because there was a certain amount of fuel that was supposed to be um, sledded uh, up from Cape Evans by a dog party. However, that dog party never made it to the depot and the fuel was never delivered. So when Scott says he he's not sure, he's, I suppose, half being truthful and half not in that he doesn't really know why it's not there, but he knows it's due to human failure. Okay. So you said the dog party that was supposed to resupply the depot with fuel didn't arrive. Mm-hmm. Why didn't it arrive? And so for our last act, I want to introduce the villain. 
This guy is called Cecil Mears, and he's an interesting guy. His job on the expedition was dog handler and Russian interpreter. And he had some interesting responsibilities. For example, he had worked, he was from Kilkenny in Ireland, but he had worked as a fur trader in Kamchatka and Okhotsk in Siberia. And so he was tasked with going to Siberia and buying the dogs and ponies that they'd need. Of course, Siberia, a very cold region and a great place to buy dogs suitable for such an expedition. He went, he bought 34 dogs and 20 ponies and brought them to New Zealand to meet up with the rest of the expedition. Unfortunately, he didn't really know anything about ponies. And in the words of Lawrence Oates, the ponies were the greatest lot of crocs I have ever seen. Had such deficiencies as narrow chests, knocked knees, aged. The other character we need is Atkinson. Edward Atkinson was a Navy man and a surgeon. Hang on. So we're at Cape Evans. Mm -hmm. Simpson, the chief scientist, doesn't want to let Atkinson leave. Atkinson, uh, who was the ranking officer at the base, decided to make his priority uh, getting Evans onto the ship. So instead of, I I suppose, the ranking officer in that type of situation would be expected to be heading the rescue operation and all that and like just basically doing whatever needed to be done to save the people. I suppose you can understand how he may feel responsibility for um, Teddy Evans coming back and Teddy Evans was in pretty bad shape um, from frostbite and scurvy and and all sorts. But due to that, due to Atkinson making his priority... um, getting Evans back onto the boat, you had, well, it has to be delegated to someone else. It's worth noting here that this exploration wasn't quite a civilian exploration. It wasn't quite a naval job either. It was a weird mix. And what that weird mix gave you was a strange command structure where you had Navy men acting as if they were part of a strict military structure with ranks and officers and orders and then you also had civilian men who weren't quite doing that and you can see that there were cases of orders not being followed with a with a large party such as that composed of men from different areas of society you know you you had scott who was a naval officer um you had you had men like cherry garrard who essentially paid his way on to the expedition but interestingly the scientists who wouldn't have been naval men, perhaps some of them may have had naval training before and probably were fine on boats. But when it came to lodgings, uh, before they made, when they when they reached Antarctica and they were using Scott's cabin, which is still there today, the scientists were housed with the officers, not with the regular men, which is interesting because you know if you're analysing this and looking, look looking back over the whole saga. And it really looks like, yeah, orders not being followed by various different people uh, at crucial times seems to have had a big influence on the outcome of, of the party. You would think that a situation like that, yeah, where you don't have uh, a clear command structure and you have civilians mixed in with um, non-full-time ma- naval men and full-time Navy men, that would maybe mess with how um, how orders are translated and how they're followed up and what kind of gravity is given to them and we we can see a failure of the command structure a failure to follow orders as part of this grand snowballing failure 
interestingly, I think it's worth uh, noting as well that perhaps Scott was aware of of something like this. I would imagine he, he would, you know, he he wouldn't understand that this wouldn't be the same as commanding a naval a naval ship out on operations or maneuvers or whatever. But in order to try to impose discipline on the ship, they actually bought membership of the Royal Naval Yacht Club. And because of that, they were able to fly the naval ensign. So that gave him some bit of authority to run it like a naval ship. So yeah, maybe maybe Scott foresaw that and that was his kind of attempt to stem any of that type of thing. Now, on the other side of the coin, you have Cherry Garrard, who applied to join Terra Nova, was rejected, applied again with a promise of a thousand pounds. This is a thousand pounds in nineteen ten money, which is an awful lot of money well, now. The, I think the entire ship was what, twelve thousand five hundred, so that gives you an idea like of He was rejected again. He made the donation regardless and obviously got inside the heads of some of the guys already there. Wilson, at that point, persuaded Scott to take him along. But this guy, he was a young guy. He had no experience of Antarctic exploration or anything like that. He was only 24. And before the end of the whole thing was entrusted in rescuing the lads i think he 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 carried out what or he led the the second or the last attempt to to kind of rescue the lads where where there was still a chance that they might be alive or you know might be recoverable but why wasn't there enough fuel in the depots he had meticulously planned all this out there were I, i mean we can't we didn't get into the details but there are lots of depots and there was a plan for what would be in every depot when they would arrive at each depot who would supply the depots but there wasn't enough fuel in the depots why not? The the, com- the comment itself is interesting because reading back now, um, I think if if you look through it or if you look through the entire story, um, you'll see that there's a good chance that Scott knew the general reasoning behind why there was no fuel in the depots, but uh, the exact reason he didn't he wouldn't have known. You know, while we talked about some of the the questionable decision making made um, on the polar plateau on the way to and on the way back from the south pole uh, scott did seemingly have contingency plans set in place and also uh, plans to make sure that all the depots that they'd used on the way out would uh, be restocked to carry them on the way back as well uh, I, I suppose when i say all the depots not necessarily the ones in the plateau because they were the only ones up there so before Scott had left, uh, he had organized with Cecil Mears, uh, who was mentioned earlier, the, the, the dog handler and tran- translator. He had arranged for Mears to make a journey to the One Ton Depot, which was a depot that had been set up previous. It was, I think, the Discovery Expedition it, it, it was set up during. Uh, he was to make sure there were five excess rations brought to the depot so excess rations were extra summit rations so uh, rations made specifically and prepared specifically for the hardest part of the journey for like getting to the south pole and back i suppose stuff that would carry the real essentials if you were in trouble and you needed sustenance and food to keep you going a couple of days these this is what these uh rations would have been so uh interestingly actually uh, it's just after coming to me now that Scott asked for five excess rations 
before he left the main group. He'd, he'd spoken to mayors and asked them for them. But at that stage, there were, there were only supposed to be four people making the final journey. Mm. So I suppose Scott potentially already knew at that stage that he was going to take an extra person on board. Yeah. Potentially. Or it could have been, you know, just... Just to, to have an extra one there, which I suppose mm. would make sense. Uh, the issue was that Mears went out, or sorry, went on the outward journey to set up uh, the depots to to uh, provide provide the guys with rations on the way out there. However, due to the bad weather and due to issues with the dogs and horses, he didn't make it back to Cape Evans. Um, I think it was about three weeks until about three weeks after he was supposed to. Um, so. Due to that, uh, due to him, him arriving back late and due to the fact because he was out longer than he expected to, he was in worse shape and needed time to recover, Mears seemingly never actually made the journey to the one-ton depot to supply those five excess rations. Important to note uh, with the orders that Scott had given Mears as well was that he had told Mears to carry out this journey at all hazard. So re- regardless of, of um, how conditions were at Cape Evans at the base camp at the time, Scott made it very clear to Mears that this this was essential to the party being able to come back and kind of uh, and survive the return journey. Mears as well at at this point may have been preoccupied uh, with having to deal with his late father's estate, which he knew at some stage between him leaving and coming back uh, would potentially be contested, and he may, I suppose, to his disadvantage. Uh, not be there to stake his claim for the estate um, and a, a, a humorous enough story from an overall not very humorous saga was that so preoccupied was Mears for uh, for a ship to arrive that could potentially whisk him off to return to Kilkenny or wherever his father's estate lay he spotted a ship that was coming into the bay and made his made his way out from the camp to meet the ship. Now, by the way, he was supposed to be leaving the camp. Mears, so, Mears, who at this stage had, it's hard to say who exactly would have known what he was supposed to do, but you would think that people would have known about this, but certainly himself knew that he hadn't carried out what Scott, the leader of the expedition, had. He, he knew in his heart he, what he would <laughs> Sorry. No. He, yeah. uh, he would have certainly known himself that he, he, he didn't, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. Um, now, maybe the, the his father's estate weighing on his mind kind of removed everything else and, and, and he didn't think about it. But yes, at, the, at this stage, um, he, he'd spotted a ship coming into Cape Evans. Uh, the ship turned out to be a mirage. The ship itself didn't arrive for another three weeks. Uh, I think it was mid-February when, when the ship arrived. Uh, so maybe that'll give you some sense of where his mind was at it at this stage. So another character in this who didn't necessarily cover themselves in glory when it came to uh, mounting a recovery operation for Scott's party was Atkinson, the naval surgeon. So due to the other recovery parties being mounted and most of, or not most of, but some of the most senior of the group uh, being stuck out on the plateau at this point, uh, he found himself the ranking officer. Now... I wouldn't be too sure as to whether he would have found himself in this position uh, many times previous to that, but it through his uh, through his actions, it would seem that he was maybe in over his head a little bit. 
So when the Terra Nova did finally arrive, the same Terra Nova that Mears had thought he'd seen three weeks earlier, uh, Cherry Garrard mentioned in his book that he found it unusual that Atkinson would order all available hands to offload the ship. Uh, at this stage, you're... you're deadlines have been missed so there's there's nothing concrete you know no one's 100 percent certain what's happened you know I, I don't think like anyone's gone to disaster stations yet however i think at that stage um everyone was aware that like if something needed to be done it would happen soon and so even to cherry uh, garrard an inexperienced non-naval officer he was able to recognize uh that atkinson choosing to do that may have not been the best use of his resources in addition to that when teddy evans was brought back to cape evans um where atkinson had found himself the ranking officer uh, at this stage suffering severely from frostbite and gangrene atkinson decided to make it his own priority to bring evans aboard the ship the the terra nova that had just returned with resupplies even at the time men within the camp find this unusual given that they would have expected him to delegate that task to someone else he was the surgeon but being the ranking officer at the camp at the time i think probably the men rightly expected that he would have been ready to mount uh, a recovery operation at, at a moment's notice however that didn't that didn't happen it ended up falling to cherry garrard to mount the relief operation because atkinson was occupied mears who had just come back from supplying the depots and having great difficulty doing that was not ready to go back out what happened was it went down and down the line of succession until it ended up that Atkinson chose Cherry Garrard, who was acknowledged to be not a good choice for this. He and Dimitri, the Siberian dog handler, headed out themselves with two dog teams and reached One Ton Depot on the 4th of March with the extra rations. They didn't find Scott there, so they said, we can either wait here or we can travel on further. However, they didn't have any dog food at further up depots they didn't think they'd need it those depots were for the south pole party returning and that would have meant killing the dogs and walking back they thought that was a risk not worthwhile they didn't realize of course that scott was heading towards them at this point he was 100 kilometers away atkinson said i am satisfied that no other officer of the expedition could have done better but maybe one might be inclined to say that Atkinson wasn't in a position to make that judgment. And if he did, he was trying to reflect better on himself. It would, than... it would seem to be a convenient judgment for him to make in that situation. Certainly. At this point, once Cherry Garrard had returned from his relief effort to One Ton Depot, still nobody had heard from Scott. They decided that probably what had happened is that they'd gotten into some sort of difficulty and the right thing to do was send out another party to try and meet them. Atkinson now left Cave Evans, led this party who were manhauling a sledge, not bringing the dogs. They got as far as Corner Camp. This is the second camp. After McMurdo Sound, where the ship was, they had Safety Camp, then Corner Camp. They only got as far as Corner Camp and said that the weather and time of year made it impossible to go any further. Atkinson says... In my own mind, I was morally certain that the party had perished. Again, taken in the context of Atkinson's own selfish uh, incentives, it's it's a it's a rough thing to say. It, yeah, it doesn't um, doesn't come across very well, does it? No. 
To wrap up the story, on the 29th of October, Atkinson leads out another party with dogs. This is no longer a rescue mission. This is a forensics mission. On the 12th of November, they find the tent with Scott and Wilson and Bowers. They found the diary. They found what had happened. They even marched further trying to find Oates' body, but uh, never found it. And uh, at that point, they came back. Yeah, I I think they... I I don't know, was it on upon reaching the tent with the three lads inside it i, I don't know was it straight away but they they built some sort of like cairn yeah tomb for them and that's mm-hmm. where they still are it's quite big actually yeah, yeah. and i i think there was definitely a, a sense of um what's it what's not gratitude it's like you know they owed them one for scientific discovery give me scott for speed and efficiency of travel give me amundsen but when disaster strikes and all hope is lost get down on your knees and pray for shackleton as a as a brief epilogue well yeah the terranova compared to like when you look at the franklin one um both those ships were lost shackleton's both the ships were lost so to be fair to scott compared to other polar expeditions he didn't get the ship stuck permanently (laughs) in ice flows (laughs) and so if we're judging him on getting the ship stuck in the ice he did a fantastic job even if you just look at the picture of uh, Amundsen's group mm-hmm. at the South Pole and then compare it to uh, Scott's group at the South Pole. They have their hoods down. They have their hoods down, but if you, if you look at the outfits they're in as well, they, they, look, like, they look like Inuit. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. f- from a distance, they like, because they are wearing like furred skins and they're wearing exactly what they would have worn in the North Pole. Uh, it's it's one of the first things you notice if you compare the two groups and kind of interesting in that it's probably one of the most important distinctions between the two of them given how badly frostbitten uh, and how how a lot of them succumb to the cold in Scott's expedition. Thanks for listening. This has been Hard Hat History. You can check us out at hardhathistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts.